Romans 8, starting in verse 18, and we'll read uh, to verse 25. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. The Apostle Paul has been writing this letter to the church in Rome because he wants them to have a strong understanding of the gospel in a culture that is not very kind to the gospel. In fact, in a lot of ways, it was quite opposite to the good news of Jesus. So, he writes this letter to lay a foundation of the gospel that will remain steadfast when the culture around them shifts and changes. Already in his letter, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has written words that will become the core foundation of Christian thought. Words like, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Then he arrives at this part of the letter that we just read together, and he writes more beautiful words. Glory that will be revealed to us. Creation being set free from bondage. Redemption of our bodies. Hope and salvation. Now, if you noticed, I did leave that whole suffering part out. Now, in my defense, it's because I don't like it. But eventually, we will come back to it, I promise. Because once again... There is that tension that exists between the future glory that will be revealed to us and present suffering. And before we go any further, I want us to understand why there is a tension that even exists in the first place between what should be and what is. In 2003, the U.S. decided to invade the country of Iraq to remove Saddam Hussein from power. Now, for all the different reasons and motivations that we decided to do that, I'm not going to get into this morning, but suffice it to say that many, if not all, saw Saddam's reign over Iraq as an evil one. So, there was a coalition formed to overthrow that rule and attempt to put in a different rule. Now, after Saddam fell, there were all these monuments that were still up reminding everyone of the power that Saddam used to hold over the country. 
And even though that old rule did not have any power anymore, there were still those monuments up of the old rule that reminded everyone of the power. And when talking about humanity and our own situation, Paul uses the same type of kingdom language. In Colossians 1, 13 through 14, it says, He, being Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We, as followers of Jesus, have been brought out of that old rule, and Christ has placed us in a new kingdom. That old kingdom of darkness has no power anymore, but we happen to live in a place that still has all those old monuments of the old kingdom. This is why that tension still exists between what should be and what is. And Paul knows this. He understands this. But Paul also understands that we have a hope that cannot be taken away no matter how bad things get. So, what is this hope? Well, this hope is the resurrection. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the resurrection? Well, let's start off by answering that question in a practical sense. The resurrection is not just a spiritual reality, but the resurrection is gloriously physical as well. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 21, says this. And you can turn there if you'd like, but it will be on the screen. It says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And jumping down to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. The resurrection is not just a spiritual event, a spiritual reality, but it is a physical event and a physical reality as well. Now, how do we know this? Well, I don't want to reread everything that I just read in 1 Corinthians, but I wanted to point out a couple of things. Verse 23 says, But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Firstfruits. This means that Christ's resurrection was the first of many resurrections to come. And Jesus' resurrection was both spiritual and physical. Jesus literally walked out of the tomb. If he didn't literally walk out of the tomb, then according to verse 17 of this same chapter, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
But because Jesus' resurrection was both spiritual and physical, we are not in our sins any longer, and our resurrection will be physical as well. Now, some of us might be asking and thinking, why not just have the resurrection be a spiritual state? And that kind of makes sense because a lot of what we see in this physical world is pretty awful. But physical reality, what we see, what we touch, what we taste, what we hear, it really matters to God. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, invisible and visible. All things were created by him. In the first chapter of Genesis, when we're told that God created all things, he said, what about creation? Right, he said the spiritual stuff is really good, but the physical things, eh, not so much. No, that's not what he said at all. He said all of it was good when he created it. That's why Paul was so adamant in Romans 8.21 that creation itself, both the spiritual and the physical, will be set free from its bondage. So what is the resurrection? Well, first, it's both spiritual and physical. And secondly, the resurrection is our hope. Looking back at Romans 8.23, it says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And this word hope is not a fickle term like, man, I hope it doesn't rain today. No, this word hope is more than that. It's something we can't see, but we know is there, like an anchor always holding us secure in life's trials. And the Lord himself has even given us a guarantee of this hope. 2 Corinthians 5, 4 through 6 says, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we should be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. The Lord has given us His Holy Spirit as a guarantee that one day our bodies will not be burdened and broken by sin any longer, but that it will be redeemed and restored. When I lived here, I used to work at a bank over in Loganville. I was a teller. I handled people's money. I took mortgage payments. I received large shipments of cash. I would scan checks and other documents at the end of every day, and I would balance my drawer to make sure I had been accurate in all of the day's transactions. I was awful at it. I'm bad at numbers, I'm horrible with details, and my short-term memory is comparable to that of a moth. But I absolutely loved getting to know and interact with the people there. I was there four years, so I got to know a lot of the customers that came uh, in the bank. 
and I got to form meaningful relationships with a lot of them. One such customer was an older gentleman by the name of Robert. He didn't have a lot of business at the bank besides depositing and withdrawing money from time to time. He talked often of his family cabin up in the Blue Ridge Mountains and talked even more often about his family. Three to five minute interactions really aren't a lot of time to get to know someone, but they do build up over four years. One peculiar thing I noticed about Robert was his signature. While it was still very legible, it had begun to get a bit shaky in his older age. But that wasn't the peculiar part. What was so peculiar is that every time he'd sign anything, he'd get so frustrated by the shakiness of it, and he would apologize every single time he signed his name. When I knew that my days as a teller were coming to a close, I began to tell all the clients that I had grown close to. So on my last day, most clients either brought me donuts or candy or unsolicited advice. But Robert, on my last day, came in, and he came up to the window, and he handed me this yellow folder. Now, to be honest, initially, I was a little disappointed it wasn't donuts. But when I opened the yellow folder, I pulled out these beautiful drawings and a card that read in shaky handwriting, attached a few pen and inks when my hands worked better. And then I thought of all the moments when he signed his name, and it hit me. Now I knew why Robert was so frustrated all of the time and why he consistently apologized. It's because Robert knew exactly what he was capable of. Robert knew what was inside of him. Robert's situation reminds me of our own sometimes. Romans 7, 18 through 19 says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Right? It's, all, it's in all of us to paint these beautiful pictures of redemption and resurrection so that we can show others the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus. In fact, it's our calling to do that. But our flesh fails and our hands shake and our tendencies are sinful and those monuments from previous kingdoms, they can keep us from drawing a clear picture sometimes. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's kindness and grace are able to show through our shaky outlines. Now, in the context of his drawing ability, some might say that Robert was a shadow of his former self. But in the context of the resurrection, I heard a pastor once say that we are all shadows of our future self. So the resurrection is our hope that one day we won't be burdened by shaky hands, but we'll be able and free to paint exactly as we were intended. So what is the resurrection? It is our present hope of a future glory guaranteed by God's Holy Spirit when all spiritual and physical realities are redeemed from the effects of sin and death. Now, because the resurrection is a future glory, 
you probably need to answer the question, when is the resurrection? Well, let's answer this in a couple different ways. First, let's answer this in a personal sense. When is the resurrection? Well, the resurrection is not right after we die. Well, at least not immediately. Why is that? Well, remember the resurrection is both a spiritual and a physical reality. It is a future state of the redemption of all creation, including our bodies. So we know that the resurrection is not right after we die, at least not immediately, because very simply and very respectfully, each grave and each graveyard is still full. So if life after death isn't resurrection, what is life after death? Well, there are a couple of instances in Scripture where we are given wonderful hints as to what life after death is like. One of these verses comes from what we just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's verse 8. It says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. When we die and we are away from our body, we are present with the Lord. We are at home with him. And then in Luke 23, verse 43, in the context when Jesus is on the cross and he's speaking with the thief on the cross next to him, it says this, And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There is a blissful state of being present, being home with the Lord with no more pain or no more worry, no more anxiety or fear. If we have put our faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross and in his resurrection, we attain a rest that only God can give. So, life after death for those who are in Christ is a beautiful and a wonderful thing. But the resurrection is still to come. So, let's look at when the resurrection will happen in a more cosmic sense. And we're still in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's look back at verse 21. Once again, it'll be on the screen. Verse 21, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. So, when was Christ resurrected? He's resurrected three days after the crucifixion. And when are we resurrected? At Christ's coming or at his return. Let's keep reading verse 24 through 26. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Then comes the end. When he has put all enemies under his feet, those signs and those monuments that remind us of the previous kingdom's rule will be taken down. So what will that look like at the end of everything? Well, let's all turn together to Revelation 21. And as you're turning there, I just want to say that I've given you the answer to 
When is the resurrection? What, what will that be like at like a 30,000 foot view? And if you have more questions about the end and about the resurrection, what, what that will look like, well, you're in luck because as you saw in the video, Pastor Sandy is starting the book of Revelation next Sunday. And if there's anyone who can give a 30-foot view of what this will be like rather than a 30,000-foot view, it's Pastor Sandy. All right. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The future glory that will be revealed to us is this, new heavens, new earth. God is dwelling with his people. He will be with us and he will be our God. God himself will wipe away our tears. There is no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. Everything is new and beautiful. Everything is true. Creation is free and no longer in bondage. At the end of everything, faith will be turned to sight, and we can rest eternally with our God in a resurrected creation and with a resurrected body. Isn't that beautiful? Now, at the very beginning, I said I didn't want to talk about the first passage, the part in Romans that talks about the, the sufferings of this present time. Well, we need to talk about it because we still live in a place full of old monuments, don't we? There is still death. There are still bad doctors' diagnosis. There is still selfishness and prejudice and greed and anger and sorrow and pain and tears. And I think the scripture that portrays this tension of having faith in a future glory but still being present and current suffering, I think the scripture that most vividly portrays this is found in the Gospel of John. So turn with me one more time to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. And we'll start in verse 20. And as you're turning there, if you're not familiar with the story of Lazarus, here are some brief details. Mary and Martha, who were sisters, had a brother named Lazarus, and they were all very close to Jesus. While Jesus was in another town doing ministry, Lazarus became ill. So Mary and Martha sent messengers to Jesus to let Jesus know that, hey, if you don't come right away, he's not going to make it. And after Jesus hears that message, he takes a couple more days in that town. And then he starts to head towards Lazarus. 
But as Jesus is making his way back to Lazarus, some more people from Mary and Martha show up and they let Jesus know that Lazarus has died. And this is where we pick up in the story, John chapter 11, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So first we have this exchange between Jesus and one of Lazarus' sisters, Martha. Martha, I think, represents one kind of response in the midst of suffering. Immense faith. And this immense faith is beautiful. Listen to what she says to Jesus when she sees him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And how does Jesus respond to Martha's immense faith? Well, he meets Martha exactly where she is. Jesus responds with, your brother will rise again. And then Martha responds again with great faith. She says, I know that he will rise at the last day. Then Jesus responds again to her faith when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe. Martha, in unbelievable pain, responds with beautiful and unbelievable faith. And Jesus responds to Martha by meeting her where she is. And he affirms the faith that she has. How kind is Jesus. And as we keep reading, we have another kind of exchange, one between Jesus and Lazarus's other sister, Mary. Picking up in verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary, I think, represents the kind of response a majority of us have when we encounter suffering. I am in this category. She says the exact same thing Martha said at first. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But what Mary could not say was, but even now I know, like Martha did. Now this is just me, but I wonder 
If Martha kind of instructed Mary what to say, like they kind of practiced it. I can just imagine their conversation. All right, Mary, we don't want to upset Jesus. Jesus might be disappointed in us if we don't show immense faith during this trial. But maybe when Mary saw Jesus, she just couldn't follow through with the plan. She did not say, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. But even now, I know. No, she said, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And she is weeping. This is us, is it not? Well, it's me at least. We have this plan, we have this idea, we have this theological framework about how we will respond to pain and hurt and suffering when it happens, or how we're supposed to respond or expected to respond, right? Lord, my child is sick. Lord, my parent got a bad diagnosis. Jesus, my spouse just told me they want a divorce. But I believe in you, Lord. If this is your will, I surrender. Lord, I pray they get better, but if they don't, it's okay because it's your will, not mine. Your ways are not my ways. Sometimes that's how we are expected to respond. Now, this is that an acceptable and beautiful form of faith? The Lord, not my will, but your will be done? Absolutely it is. Yes, this is how Martha responded. And Jesus met Martha there, right where Martha was. But I also think that Scripture gives us permission to respond like Mary when suffering happens. The, where were you, Jesus? If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened response with no, but Lord, I know at the end. And this response is just as much a picture of worship and faith in the future glory as Martha's response is. And you might say, well, that doesn't look like faith. And I would probably agree with you. You're right. It doesn't look like faith. But do you know why this type of response is still a beautiful and true picture of faith? Because look at where Mary fell. There is a difference between saying, where is Jesus in this and just walking away and saying, Jesus, where are you while still falling at his feet? So let's see how Jesus reacts to Mary's response. Verse 33 through 37. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So first of all, Jesus does not rebuke Mary. Or in other words, Jesus doesn't say, why don't you have faith like your sister? And he's also not patronizing in her pain either. He doesn't say, why are you crying? Don't you know the glory that will be revealed to you one day? Don't you know the end of the story? No, Jesus doesn't do that either. He meets Mary right where she is, just like he met her sister right where she was. He was moved 
Our Lord is not threatened by our pain and our petitions, but he is moved by them. In fact, he is so unbelievably kind and loving that he moves not away from us, but he moves towards us. And then Jesus asks Mary where she has laid Lazarus. And I think if we could audibly hear Jesus speak into our own situations, where have you laid him, might translate into where does it hurt? Another way to put it is there is something in your life that once brought beauty and joy, but because we still live in this tension between what should be and what is because this world still has those old monuments up of the old kingdom because all things are not made new yet. Because of that, some things still hurt. And then Mary and the other Jews brought Jesus to where it hurt. They said, Lord, come see. We need to be willing to invite Jesus into our own hearts, and into our own hurts so he can heal them. And as we do, Jesus weeps with us. There is no comparison of another person's faith. There is no casual reminder that it's not always going to be this way. We win in the end, you know, cheer up. No, Jesus meets us exactly where we are. And if where we are is a place of immense faith like Martha's, then that is beautiful form of worship and a beautiful form of faith. And Jesus meets us there. And if it's a mournful cry and a heartbroken petition like Mary's, then that is also a beautiful form of worship and faith. And he will meet us there too. About three years ago, as many of you know, the city of Noonan was hit by an EF4 tornado. That night, Stephanie and I knew that there would be severe weather, and so it started off like any night. We set our alarms for severe weather, and then we went to bed, and if anything crazy was going to happen, it would wake us up. And So we went to bed, but as the night went on, we realized that this was going to be a little different. The storm just kept moving towards noon, and so we took the next step, and we got up and got Sam, uh, who was seven months old at the time, out of his crib. And we went to the only place that's considered the downstairs in a ranch-style home. It was in the stairway that led up to our bonus room. So we grabbed Sam, we grabbed his boppy so he could be comfortable. We grabbed some cushions off the couch, which is great protection. Um, And then we got into the stairwell and we just sat there. And we had done this before. Noonan gets a lot of tornado warnings. So we were just sitting there, and we were watching the uh, news coverage on my phone. But once again, as we started realizing, this was different. So we started to pray, and I was covering Sam, and we put couch cushions over our head. And then we started hearing the rain against the house. And then we, our house started shaking And then the window that was there blew out, and all this glass was flying everywhere. Part of our ceiling got sucked up into the attic. I didn't hear a train, but what I did hear is an acre of our woods snapping at the same time. And I remember thinking, and I I smelled pine tree, 
And I remember thinking, it's not Christmas. I should not be smelling pine tree in my house. So that's our house circled in yellow there. It, it was a direct hit, uh, the EF4 tornado. We, there were about five to 10 seconds where I thought this could go either way. And I remember screaming prayers and asking the Lord to save us. As soon as it started, it ended, it felt like. It was the worst night of my life. I felt like Jesus was asleep in the storm. A couple weeks later was Easter Sunday. And my pastor and I were driving around the town, just making sure the members of our church were okay and had all the supplies that they needed. And as we were driving back into my neighborhood, you know, we saw all the destruction in our neighborhood. I remember thinking, like, I can't lead Resurrection Sunday feeling like this. I can't. So I remember turning to Joel and saying, Joel, I, I don't think I can lead worship this Sunday. I just, I'm not in a place. I, I, I'm so sorry, I can't. Really, it sounded like this. I'm so sorry, Joel, I can't. That's really what it sounded like. And Joel, Joel was so gracious. He said, all right, we'll, we'll get someone else to lead worship. That's fine. That's okay. And I was like, thank you. I still played guitar, but someone else had to lead it because I, I couldn't pretend to be like, yeah, it's Resurrection Sunday. That means everything's okay. <laughs> A couple weeks after Easter, I was in the hallway of our church, and it, you know, once church lets out, everyone's congregating together, talking with everyone else. And, and so I, I pass by one of mine and Stephanie's friends, and she stops me and she says, hey, how are y'all doing? How are you? How are you doing? And, and without skipping a beat, I said, oh, I, I'm still working on forgiving God. And there was no, but I know that it will be all okay. No, I just said, I'm working on forgiving God still. And I was like, oh, pastor shouldn't say that. So I, I went, I, you know, I kind of got out of there kind of fast and I was like, whoa, you know, that's, yeah, I'm working on forgiving God. Now, is that theologically correct to, to say that God does anything or allows anything that's worthy of us needing to forgive him? No, that is not theologically correct. That is, that is not true. But was Jesus mad at me for feeling that way, for asking questions, and for saying that? No, he was not. Jesus met me right there, and Jesus continually asked me, where does it hurt? And the Lord gave me the strength to say, Lord, come and see. And I allowed Jesus to heal me in the places that it hurt. And it was not a one-time thing. Over the years, over the three years since the tornado, I have prayed I have spoken with pastors. I have spoken with professional counselors. Many of you all came down to visit us to either help clear the debris from our yard or to just simply be with me and Stephanie and to mourn with us over what once was. And over time, Jesus has continued to heal that area of brokenness where now when a thunderstorm comes, my heart 
doesn't race, and I don't get sweaty, and I don't start panicking, but I can enjoy a thunderstorm once again. Jesus has healed and is continuing to heal that area of brokenness. Let's read the last verses of John 11 together. 1138 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So, finally, there will be healing. There will be a time when Jesus will make all wrong things right. And sometimes Jesus' healing of broken things is not this immediate. In fact, more times than not, it's not this immediate And when his healing is not immediate, whether it takes years or whether it takes until he makes all things new, you have permission to respond like Martha with immense faith and confidence in the midst of suffering. And you also have permission to respond like Mary with questions and petitions. And Jesus will meet us right where we are And he will heal us, either now or in the glory to come. But there will be a time when Jesus turns our sufferings of this present time into a glory that shall be revealed to us. Now, after hearing all of this, I want to encourage us to do a couple things in regards to this tension of future glory and present sufferings. One, I want us to rest and our future hope. And what do I mean by rest? Well, when Stephanie and I found out we were pregnant, we turned my home office into the nursery, as it often happens. And our nursery was finished complete six months before Sam was even born. But sometimes we would find ourselves just wanting to be in that room So there would be times where we would just go into that room and we'd either just sit on the floor or we'd sit on the furniture there. I was in the rocking chair sometimes. where We just wanted to be in that room because it reminded us of the promise that God had given us that one day soon there would be a baby here. So likewise, I would like for us to rest by maybe sometimes reading this chapter in Revelation, Revelation 21 And read John 11, that just gives us hope of this future reality. Now, it doesn't mean you spend 24-7 just reading this and not doing anything else. No, but just sometimes when we need to rest from everything else and just focus on the promise of the resurrection. 
And then I want us to take courage, as 2 Corinthians 5, 6 says. Why do we take courage? Is it because we don't have sufferings during this present time? No, because we do. But we take courage because the one who is resurrection and the one who is life and the one who will wipe away our tears and take away our sorrows one day is actually present with us now in our sufferings. And because one day in the maybe not too distant future, he will look over his bride who he has redeemed and who he has resurrected and he will proclaim, behold, I am making all things new. I want to close today by praying, and maybe praying a little differently than we're all used to. It's called a response prayer, where I'll lead us in the first part of the prayer by asking a question, and then you'll answer the question. You'll respond to the question. It's kind of like a baby dedication that Pastor Sandy does. Uh, He'll ask the congregation, you know, do you promise to help these parents raise their child? And then you respond with, hopefully, yes, we we will, or yes. So so, uh, I ask a question and you'll respond. So this morning, it won't be a familiar type of prayer, but it will be familiar to you. You sing these words often. And I'll say the words in white, and then you will respond with the words that are highlighted and in parentheses. Once again, I'll say the words in white and you respond with the words that are highlighted in parentheses. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this?